young man, just a teenager. I had an uncle who would often take me night hunting with him, and went with him quite, quite often. Big adventure for me at that age. So, kind of watched him and learned from him a lot of things. And one thing he would always do is before he walked from the truck into the, the woods, he'd always take out his compass and take a reading. And I thought to myself, why does he do that? He knows these woods like the back of his hand anyway. And he'd never take it out of his pocket again. And you know, you, you have moon and light, you adjust to the light, and you, you kind of know the outline of the lamps. He didn't have any problem. So why does he bother to do that? Well, one particular night I found out, we had just got into Woodshood and clouded up, the moon was blocked out, a fog rolled in, and you couldn't see anything. And I found out on that night why he always took a reading with that compass before he went. So what I want to talk to you about in these next few weeks is illustrated by that this way. The parables we find in Matthew 13 is a compass for us. They help us in our hearts and minds and emotions navigate the day in which we live. It points us to an end. It gives us some assurance by telling us what it's going to be like in the present. Jesus here reveals prophetically what is going on in the day we live right now. Not, not the future in times, in completion, although it, it stretches to that before he's finished. But where we start, the parable of the sower, the parable of the wheat and tares, the parable of the mustard seed and so on, that's all about this day we're living in. And so, mentally, and spiritually, and emotionally, this is not just my stories he told to help us understand information, but it literally provides us with a compass to know where we're going and know where we're at along the way. And not to be disturbed, distressed about what is going on. Because he told us in, ahead, in advance, told us ahead of time, what was going to be right here in these parables. Now, the parables of Matthew 13 are misinterpreted very, very often. And we'll talk more about the principles we need to apply to interpret them next week when we get started on the first parable. Today we're just going to introduce the, the study to you. And I've read this, I've studied it many times, I'm, I'm always excited to get back to it and, and go through it again. Because it's that, it's that compass that reminds us of so much. We need. So don't, don't feel like, you know, well, we know this already because, yeah, some things we need to know already again, you know, <laughs> we need to revisit it. 
But then again, I think probably there's going to be some things that we didn't contemplate. Things to learn here as well. But there's so many people that just think they're irrelevant. These parables are irrelevant. They're just little stories he told. Just uh, you know, they may have a little bit of spiritual application, but they're not that relevant. Some people don't think they're really relevant at all to our age, which is a terrible misnomer. And then some just misinterpret in the sense that they don't understand the security we have in Christ, and they think these are some kind of warnings that God is giving to us, the way we should act, or things we should do in case, uh, you know, or in case we, you know, come in danger of losing what we have, and that's not what uh, we understand the truth to be. We are secure in Christ. But we have to begin by understanding the background of these parables before we can really understand what's going on. So that's where I want to begin, with the background. Now, when I say background, I'm talking about context, not necessarily the immediate context, but the whole background. So let's let's begin with the beginning of Matthew. And just kind of work ourselves forward to get to where we're at. This is a nice little outline I found, not mine, but it goes beyond Matthew 12, but this is all we need to look at. Because this just helps us understand uh, the general context of Matthew. Matthew was written to the Jewish people. And so Matthew always connects everything he's saying back to old, the Old Testament, to the prophecy and so forth. And in particular, the identity of Jesus Christ, identifying him as the Messiah. The word Messiah means anointed one. Uh, that comes from the Old Testament. But in the New Testament, when you see the name, or the title, I should say, Christ, it's the same as Messiah. It means anointed one. Well, why is he described as the anointed one? You remember David was anointed by Samuel? Well, Saul was too, prior to that. Anointed because of his choice to be King. In David's case, you know, God's particular choice, an unlikely choice, uh, as far as Samuel and Jesse was concerned when they started out. And uh, he then later was anointed to be the next king in Israel. Of course, that wasn't until Saul's demise that, that actually took place. So, to be the anointed one, to be the Messiah, to be the Christ, is to be the king of Israel. And we're going to connect that to of the Old Testament war in a moment. So the first chapter is about his genealogy, who he was, and traces him back to David. Well, it goes back further than that, but in particular it goes back to David, which is very crucial to what we're going to talk about. And then we have his teachings, uh, his identification through his uh, baptism here, I should say first, the confirmation, and uh, we'll come back to this in a moment too. <laughs> The baptism of Christ, the descending of the dove, and all that. And then his temptation, his conquest over Satan in chapter 4. By the way, so many people miss this. They think 
Jesus was tempted to see if he would sin. That's not the case. He could not sin. He was tempted to prove he would not sin. This was a demonstration of that. And then in chapters 5 to 7, we have the Sermon on the Mount, the beginning of his teaching. Uh, and then in 8 to 10, his credentials as king. And finally, when you get to chapter 11 and 12, it's about his rejection. The Jewish nation rejected him as their king. That's critical to understand. Now, you have this outline there on your sheet, so you can refer back to it. <clears throat> this rejection is something that puzzled people for years and years. And some uh, get hung up on trying to determine, well, was he actually offering the kingdom to the Jews at this time, or was he not? The only thing we have to know is God is, is uh, omniscient. He knew they were going to reject him as their king. So there was no possibility the kingdom was going to begin at this time. But the rejection is tied into his crucifixion and his crucifixion to his resurrection and his resurrection to his ascension. And that's when this mystery form of the kingdom and the parables of Matthew 13 come in. It was something that was not prophesied in the Old Testament. It was a mystery. So let's talk about the kingdom. First of all, 2 Samuel 7. Second Samuel chapter 7. David is desirous of building the temple. God would not let him build the temple. His son Solomon would do that. But in the midst of this time period, God through Nathan the prophet gives David a prophecy that in, entails his future descendants. Somebody may have uh, 2 Samuel 7 verse 16. <clears throat> Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. His house, his descendants, his throne, eternally secured by the promise and the prophecy of God. Jesus, as we learned when we looked at the outline there, talked about his genealogy, is a descendant of David. So he's part of the house of David. And he can reign eternally, obviously, and he will reign from David's throne, David's house, and then the everlasting authority or kingdom that will give that, of course, will be fulfilled in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, understanding that, There's the whole prophecy right there. We just read one verse. It states that the covenant made with David included an everlasting kingdom for Israel. Matthew presents Jesus as the king of that kingdom. However, 
the Jewish nation rejected Jesus as the Messiah. That rejection is what we call the unpardonable sin. This is at the bottom of your first page. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 12. Why don't you turn there with me in your Bible? This is something a lot of people have questions about. It's, it's probably the number one question I've been asked over my entire ministry. Just people wanting to know, what's this about? So let's look at Matthew chapter 12. And back to verse 22. Then a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus, and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. Demon-possessed, blind, unable to talk. Verse 23 says, after Jesus healed him, all the crowds were amazed and were saying, this man cannot be, this man cannot be the son of David, can he? In other words, they're beginning to contemplate, is this the Messiah? And rightfully so. But look at the contrast in verse 24. But the Pharisees heard this. When the Pharisees heard this, they said, this man cast out demons only by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. This was an incredible miracle. A threefold miracle all rolled up and wrapped into one. And sovereignly this man was placed there at this moment to be a demonstration of the power that Jesus wielded to not only the crowds, but in particular to the leaders of the Jewish nation, the Pharisees. Now drop down to verse 28. In Jesus' response to this criticism that he was doing this great miracle by the power of Satan, which is about another reference to Satan. They, they didn't deny what he had done. It was obvious. Everybody knew this man, knew his condition, and suddenly he can see, he can hear, he can talk. He, he's not demon-possessed. Uh, they couldn't deny that. That's why they said, no, he's not. he did it all right, but he did it by the power of Satan. Famous statement that Jesus makes here in between, uh, kingdom cannot be divided against itself. Remember that. But look at verse 28. He says, but if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Now drop down to verse 31. Therefore I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people, but blasphemy, blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. Connect Spirit to verse 28 with Spirit in verse 31. Verse 32 now. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Spirit, three times now the Spirit is mentioned, it shall not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. What's this about? Well, who has Philippians 2.6? And although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Okay. I gave you 
Philippians 2, 6, and I should have said Philippians 2, 6, and 7. So could you go ahead and read verse 7? <laughs> but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men. Okay. Verse 6, he existed in the form of God, which in the original it means he wasn't, a, you know, a, a representation of God, but it means he was literally God, face to face, equivalent to God. That's what it means. <laughs> Equality with God, as it says here. He didn't, equality with, with God wasn't something that he had to grasp for or hope for. No, he had it. Verse 7, but emptied himself, taking upon him the form of a bondservant. When he became a man, he set aside his privileges as deity and submitted himself to the will of the Father. That we're pretty familiar with. But when he set aside the independent exercise of his deity, he also only did, accomplished the miraculous in the power of the Spirit, not himself, because he had chosen to empty himself. We referenced earlier Matthew 3.16. Who has that? As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was open, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting on him. So there was a sign a representation, a symbol of the Holy Spirit in, in the form of a dove that came and like, but Jesus is God second person of God the Spirit is God, the third person of the God the Father spoke from heaven this is my Son whom I am well pleased God the Father God the Son who is baptized this is my Son and the Spirit, the three are there the Trinity it wasn't that he didn't have the spirit before, or he, he was God, he's part of the Trinity. This was just a, a, a visible sign that he was going to operate in the power of the spirit. When he did this miracle in Matthew 12, he did it in the power of the spirit. And what he is saying to these people is this. You've seen the power of God right here in front of you, and you deny it. You've seen the power of God, and you reject it. And when you see the power of God accomplished by the Spirit, and you blaspheme against it, and you reject it, and you say it's of the devil, there's no hope for you. That's unpardonable. Now, a lot of people say, well, isn't the, isn't the unpardonable sin the fact that if God convicts you and you know you need to place your faith in Christ and you reject him, you'll be lost and lost forever. Now, that's true. And that's an application from this. But historically, this was the official rejection of Jesus Christ as God the Messiah by the Jewish people. Represented in the representation of their leadership. 
Now, having said all that, remember the next thing we come to, basically, in chapter 13, the parables of the kingdom. And this, then, is uh, very significant. He didn't reveal what was going to happen after his rejection, crucifixion, <coughs> resurrection. He didn't tell us anything about what was going to happen between his first and second coming until after he was rejected by the Jewish people. Now, the unpardonable sin was committed, therefore the earthly kingdom will come to pass at some future time, obviously. Now let's talk about the promise of the kingdom again. When we just read this, but just to remind you, this promise made to David that we talked about a few minutes ago, I kind of got it out of order a little bit. 2 Samuel 7, 18, actually 16 to 18. You don't read backwards, but you know, sometimes you type backwards. <laughs> the point is, God made an unconditional covenant with David. This builds on the unconditional covenant given to the father of the Jewish nation, Abraham, back in Genesis 12. It expands on that. God didn't say, well, I might do this someday if we all, you know, do really well with baby. It's unconditional. So there was a promise to the king. It's going to happen. The Jews thought it was, you know, going to happen. They were always looking for it. But those that are true believers might be questioning, especially after his crucifixion. I mean, they didn't anticipate that, even though he told them more than once. Even his disciples were unprepared for it. So he's preparing them in advance by giving them these parables that are going to come, we're going to come to in chapter 13 about what's going to go on during this age between his first and second coming. But there is a kingdom coming. Again, the rejection of the king. Since God knew that Israel would reject their promised king, there was no possibility of a kingdom at that time. Keep in mind, God's plans are not fouled up, forcing him to put another plan in place, because he's a sovereign God. He's an omniscient, all-knowing God. This is part of his plan for the redemption of mankind and the future. That said, there can be no kingdom in the future until Israel accepts the king. They didn't when he came the first time. The nation will. At least many of them, not all of them, but there'll be a vast number of Jewish people saved during the tribulation period to be part of the kingdom. There's something important. God's promise of the kingdom to be fulfilled before God's promise of the kingdom to be fulfilled, Jesus must reign internally in the hearts of his subjects and externally upon the throne of David. Now, somebody has in Jeremiah 31 uh, card, I think. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. Writing on their hearts, not living under the law. It's an internal change. This is describing the new covenant, which is beyond the scope of our discussion here. But obviously, that new covenant 
comes about when the kingdom comes about. So, <coughs> he needs to reign internally in the hearts of his subjects and externally upon the throne. That's both yet future. It will come to pass when Christ returns. So let's talk about that in interim period between the first and second coming. What about the period between his rejection and his return? That some refer to as the parenthesis or the great parenthesis. Jesus referred to this interim period as a mystery in Matthew 13, 11. Verse 11, Jesus answered them, To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. So he is saying, I'm, I'm granting unto you, the disciples, the believers that were there listening and hearing, and, and for us also, uh, by way of the recorded scripture, to understand the mystery. Now, what does he mean by mystery? In the Bible, a mystery is always something previously unknown, but now revealed. It's not a mystery to us. We have it. He gave it to us. It was a mystery to the people he was speaking to up until he told them. And now that he tells them, he reveals this information and explains these parables. And it's not a mystery anymore to But it's a mystery because it was only now revealed. Here was the case in the Old Testament. You've got the Old Testament prophet here. Probably Chris pretty small for you to read this. But this represents the Old Testament prophet who's seeing across these mountaintops of time down to the kingdom. And there are hundreds and hundreds of prophecies in the Old Testament, references in the Old Testament to that coming kingdom. But there's nothing said in the Old Testament about this valley in here we call the church age. And this is what Jesus is giving us in Matthew 13, information about this. It was still, it was still future when he gave it, because he's right about here, before the cross in Calvary. And they don't, they don't see this. They haven't seen it. It's been a mystery. It's not been revealed. So the interim between Christ's two comings was not revealed in the Old Testament. Matthew 13 is the first revelation of this interim period between the first and second coming. And it tells us what it will be like. The first revelation, the first prophecy. By the way, it is virtually the only prophecy. There's, there's a tad more in Matthew chapter 24 and 25, probably uh, comes in here. But virtually, this is not only the first, but it's the only revelation given to us in the Bible about the day in which we are living. That's why it's so incredible and so important to us as a compass. Because it's called a mystery, it's often referred to as the mystery form of the kingdom. But the mystery form of the kingdom and the church age 
are roughly synonymous. We just use the term church age. He does not use the term church age. The church doesn't exist. The disciples have no understanding or, or no way to fathom what the church is going to be. So he says it's a mystery form of the kingdom, a mystery type. Because all the way through Matthew 13, he says, the kingdom of heaven is light. Don't get tripped up over the terminology, the kingdom of heaven. The of there references the source. It's a very simple, grammatical way that you speak of source. You say, uh, I think of a, a common thing of, of if someone were saying, were to say to you, uh, of, of what uh, uh, heritage are you? Of what? What's your heritage? Of what? And you say, well, uh, my family's basically of England. Or, it, it's a reference to the source. We don't necessarily talk exactly like that, but we might say from. It's basically the same thing. So it's a kingdom that has its authority from heaven. Because that's where Jesus is. He's not walking the earth here. So it's a kingdom, not a kingdom, with a king present on a throne like it will be in the millennial kingdom, but it's a kingdom that exists now that's ruled from heaven. That's all of that. He doesn't call it the church because they wouldn't understand what that meant. But they can relate it to the future kingdom with a king who is present on the throne. I say roughly synonymous because it actually extends beyond the rapture of the church for a little bit. A few years, and we're going to see that. It extends from the ascension of Christ to the end of the tribulation. So roughly equivalent means most of that time is going to be the church age. The last few years is going to be the tribulation. It's roughly equivalent. Here's a prophetic chart. I know it's really difficult for you to read everything on there. Uh, maybe I'll make some copies, photocopies of this for next week so you don't have it. But here's Christ's first coming, the cross, his resurrection, ascension, and then the day of Pentecost, the church begins, we have the church age, which goes over here to the rapture of the church. And then you have the seven years of tribulation divided into two halves here and the second coming of Christ at the end of that, and then the kingdom period. Now watch this chart. And I'm going to show you the scope of the kingdom of heaven. It includes the church age and the tribulation. Okay. Why does he speak in parables in Matthew 13? Look at verse 10, 13, 10. And the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? Jesus answered them, To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. So he's saying this. He's saying, I'm speaking in parables to reveal truth. Any little errors on this thing? <laughs> We're so uh, going the wrong way here. Here we go. Uh, he spoke to his disciples and the believers to reveal 
truth about kingdom age, mystery form. When he speaks in parables instead of plainly to conceal that same truth from unbelievers. If you read these references here, uh, yeah, they're on your sheet. And they'll become very apparent. So why would God want to conceal what's going to happen? They've already rejected him. The, the nation has observed the power of God firsthand, can't deny it, and still rejects him. He doesn't need to reveal anything to them. It doesn't mean that God keeps truth from people in this age. That's just a historical reality here when he answers that question. Now, here are the parables that we're going to address. We'll start next week with the parable of the sower. Then you have the parable of the wheat and tares, the parable of the mustard seed, the parable of the leaven, the parable of the hidden bread, the parable of the pearl, and the parable of the dragnet. It's not till you get to the parable of the dragnet that you get to the end of the mystery form of the kingdom when Christ comes back, the end of the tribulation. Everything else, all these other six, are pretty general information about the whole period which we need to understand. Now, this at this point, with me just talking about it, can be a little bit confusing. So, I, I didn't even come up with this flow chart until about halfway through it. I was teaching the other class. I just need to conceptualize it, because you can see a picture of something, you kind of, oh, you get clicks quickly. So let's try this. The kingdom of heaven. God gave Adam dominion over all creation. The garden before he fell. But Adam surrendered that, that dominion to Satan when he sinned. Because Satan said, you need to do this. I mean, God gave him one restriction. Don't eat of, the tree, <laughs> of this tree. The fruit of this tree. He knew what God's will was. And other than that restriction, Adam is given dominion over everything. And Satan says, we can need to eat this fruit. Which they did. So he literally submitted, he literally rejected God's instruction and submitted himself to Satan's will. That was a fall. And we all suffer the consequences of that to this day. The kingdom of heaven, though, that Jesus is describing in Matthew 13, is the first step to recovering what Adam lost. Look, we've already been recovered by our faith in Jesus Christ, our position in eternity. But the kingdom has not been recovered. The dominion over this earth has not been recovered. That's what will recover, be recovered in the millennial kingdom. So let's look at this chart. God is the ultimate authority. God delegated most of that authority, as far as the earth is concerned, to Adam. Now, God's still the ultimate authority over all this. He has, God hasn't abdicated. He's still sovereign God. But 
What he delegated to Adam, Adam surrendered to Satan. In other words, Satan usurped. Uh, Why did Satan want to do that? The very beginning. What did he want to be? He wanted to be like God. He wanted people to worship him. That's why he's called the God of this world, 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. Don't jot that down. I didn't get it on the screen. I believe it's 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. He's referred to as the God, little g, God of this world. Why do you think Satan can come to Jesus in Matthew 4 as part of that temptation to prove that Jesus would not sin, and Satan said, if you'll bow down and worship me, I'll do what? I will give you what I possess, this authority over the kingdom of the world. So we have the kingdoms of the world here. Now, Jesus comes along. He pays a price for being sin. He redeems us individually, but there's a kingdom to be reestablished. The kingdom of heaven. Matthew 13, the parables, is the first step to recovering the whole thing. It's a foothold in the kingdoms of the world controlled by Satan. By the way, this is why government will never solve all of our problems for us. Government exists over here. Amen. Absolutely. <laughs> now, some, some believers might get involved in government and in other aspects of influences, and we'll come to that in one of the parables. But basically, you've got to understand the kingdoms of the world offer us nothing, the kingdom of heaven offers us everything. The kingdom of heaven, through the church, and later after the church is raptured, through the believers during the tribulation that, are, that come to know Christ. That is a foothold, a beachhead among the kingdoms of the world that is ruled by God in direct fashion. Now watch this. Ultimately, the kingdom of heaven becomes the millennial kingdom and the kingdoms of this world all come to an end. Battle of Armageddon, pretty well, pretty well removes all that, right? So this is what's happening prophetically. And everything that we read about the kingdom of heaven has to do with this time right here, which is going here. This kingdom doesn't continue. It goes from this to this. Anybody have a question? This is a lot. This is a lot to throw at you for just an introduction, but uh, it's fascinating too. Anybody? Is there something I'm not clear about, or you just want to? Maybe you just want to make a comment. Maybe it's something I'm not stating that needs to be stated. Okay. So what's, our, what's our role in government? That, that's probably a, a, a three-part lesson or whatever. But, but you know, I, I think. Christians, especially because we live in the United States and so we can vote, we think we can actually come in here and control this government and, and make it righteous. But it's not ever going to happen. No. no we're, we're never going to break into the kingdom by expanding and taking this over. 
figure's only going to come through what's prophesied. So, however, the parable of the leaven does indicate we can have a positive influence on our world. So Christians could hold office and have a positive influence. Our vote, just our existence, we're the salt of the earth, we're the light of the world. We'll have an influence over the, over this here. In fact, I have more of this flow chart, which you don't see here, but then later on we'll talk about it when we get to the parable of the leaven. This actually expands. Actually, the parable of the mustard seed shows the expansion of this, pushing this way. And then after the expansion, there's still more influence, more pushing this way against the kingdom world. We'll never, we'll never redeem it. We'll never take it over. We'll have some positive influence. And that's part of what happens during the kingdom of heaven. But ultimately, the only thing that's going to solve this is God brings these kingdoms to an end, personally. So we don't want to put a whole lot of confidence <laughs> in the authority of man, the government of man. And the church is not going to save everybody and bring in the kingdom, okay? Jesus Christ is going to defeat all his enemies and bring in the kingdom. I don't know if we got the last... I don't have it on the screen. There's one last thing on your sheet uh, here at the bottom of page two, which says God gave Adam dominion over all creation. This is under the kingdom of heaven. But Adam surrendered that dominion to Satan when he said, The kingdom of heaven is the first step to recovering what Adam lost. Let's talk about an application here quickly. John chapter 16. Can I give somebody a reference to read John 16? I don't think so. Okay. Let's turn to John 16. <laughs> crucifixion the next day. But I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you no longer see me. And concerning judgment, because the rule of this world has been judged. That happened at the cross. But go back to verse 7. I tell you the truth. He's speaking to the disciples. I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. Then he turns to this conviction of the world. And then in verse 12, he kind of comes back to that. And he says, I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. 
But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak of his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of mine and will disclose it to you. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore I said that he takes of mine and will disclose it to you. This is the illuminating ministry of the Spirit in the hearts of believers to help us understand God's truth. So as we understand Matthew 13, the age in which we're living, and apply these truths to our lives, the Spirit helping us understand that, that's, that's the importance, that's the, that's the icing on the cake for us, okay? That's what keeps us going. That's what, that's what becomes our compass. The same Spirit that Jesus relied on to do His miracles lives in us. Not so we can do miracles, but so we can understand His Word, His truth. And we have perspective on this world we live in. And we certainly need it today more than ever. <laughs> But we just look around us and sometimes we just, it distresses us. It breaks our heart to see what's happening in our country and around the world. It's just, the changes in society in America since I was a kid growing up in the 60s. It's just, you don't stop to think about it. When you do, you just realize, wow, it happens slowly. We just kind of think about it. You all can do that. We need, desperately need perspective. We need to help the Spirit. We need His guidance. We need Him to disclose to us. He has in His Word, and He help us understand it. He didn't leave us alone. He didn't leave us without us. And all His promises.